encouraged by in the word of God that have actually given you ways of thinking biblically and how you engage the people that are around you that know the Lord and don't know the Lord and so on and so forth. And so I want to point you to the bulletin. If you have one, awesome. If you don't, uh, I would encourage you to grab one as you leave. And Daryl will, does anyone need one? Does anyone need a bulletin right now? Raise your hand. No, we're good. Okay, a couple right here. So in the bulletin, there's a couple things. And I announced this first service, and I pointed people to this, and I'm hoping that this gets uh, this happens. But I know Helena and Abby and some others have kind of talked with me about homework help, okay? And so if you're in this room and you're like, man, I would love to help some college students with some homework, that sounds horrible to me. But if you would like to do that, I praise God for you. And so I would encourage you to engage with Abby, send her an email or talk to Helena, and we'll, we'll, we'll get this figured out. But we would love to be able to mentor students because we have a lot of college students. Let me hear from San Jose State. Where are you at? All right. That, that was messed up. I went the wrong direction. Let me hear from Santa Clara U. That wasn't too bad. So, so mission? All right. Anyway, <laughs> De Anza. De Anza. Come on. West Valley. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan. Woo! All right. So if you would like to help with homework help, if you have a skill, if, if you can help these students, help a brother and a sister out. All right? So just want to encourage you with that. Also, uh, this week, we are going to continue our Ecclesia series. Raise your hand or make noise if you've been to Ecclesia. Okay. So here's the great thing about Ecclesia. Uh, I get to be bilingual. And this is the only place I'm bilingual. I only know two languages. You ready? Christianese and pagan. That's all I know. All right, my pig Latin's terrible. My, and so I just, I, I would really encourage you that if you're free Wednesday night, and just to remind you, this Wednesday night, what, what, hall, what Hallmark holiday is it? Valentine's Day. So if you don't want to go out and spend too much money on eating out and kind of doing the love thing and all that, you can come to Ecclesia at 630 in the chapel, and we'll talk about God's love. Hallelujah. All right, that was a good commercial. All right, we're going we're gonna to worship in spirit and in truth. We're going to sing songs of praise to our God. And so I want to remind you, new sound equipment, if there's a distraction, let the Lord do what the Lord's going to do. And you praise your God because if you don't, what happens? The rocks will cry out. All right? And so would you close your eyes? Would you bow your heads? And let's get prepared to worship this amazing God that we follow. Lord, I know that we come from different generations in this room. We come from different perspectives. God, there are things that want to distract us this morning. And so, Lord, I ask as we engage with you, as we sing praises to you, as we give of offerings and connect with people in the room and get under your word, God, that all the praise would go to you. And so, Lord, thank you that if a distraction comes, we're not going to allow that to suck the joy out of this morning. And thank you that as we worship you and as we sing praises to you, God, I pray, I beg of you, God, would it, would it remind us that it brings a smile to your face? And so, Lord, thank you for what you're going to accomplish. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Good morning. Welcome to Church of the Volume. We invite you guys to stand with us as we open up this time of worship, this exciting worship as we get to praise our Lord. I was buried beneath my shame Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb Till I met 
Set on you. 
We thank you that we get to worship you in this place. And so, Lord, as we're going to engage with your word, we pray that we wouldn't read the word as much as the word would read us and show us where we need you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you have a seat, <laughs> I want you to meet somebody new. So would you just say hi and say welcome to Church of the Valley this morning. Go. Good job. All right, I invite you guys to get to know each other, and you do it too well. All right, that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> that's enough. Hey, would you guys grab your Bibles? We're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy, go to the right of, your, of the Scripture if you go to Revelation. Too far. 2 Timothy, right after 1 Timothy. See how helpful I am? 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're just going to look at one verse in that book. 2 Timothy chapter 4 is where we're going to start. This is the final week of our series called Prepared with an Answer. And our hope was that we would equip a body of believers to engage with God's word and to understand the what, the why, the who, the how, the when, and today the where of evangelism or proclamation or sharing one's faith with somebody else. I want to start with this verse that Paul the Apostle writes to Timothy. This isn't where we're going to do most of our study today, but I just want to start as Paul speaks to this young pastor in the church of Ephesus. Here's what he says, 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 2. He says, preach the, what's, what's that word? There you go. Just making sure you're paying attention. If you underline in your Bibles, please underline word. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, those two, really good at those, right? And encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So I got a question for you. According to this passage, as Paul speaks to Timothy, what is it that we proclaim? The word. And not just different verses, especially out of context, but we explain the word who became flesh, the, the one who lived among us, the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure how everyone in this room views the Bible or views the words of God, 
But we believe, and, and if you don't, I just want to, I'm going to encourage you to start to understand this. We believe this is absolute truth. We believe this comes from God, that these are the very words of God, and no book or writing supersedes this. A dear friend of mine was telling me a story of this past week, <sighs> and I was in Pete's. I know many of you were surprised by that. In fact, I was meeting with you, Max, and, and I was in Pete's, and all of a sudden, after meeting with Max, I, two of my friend, or a friend of mine walked in who's a pastor in the area, and he was meeting with someone who was actually taking his job at a former church, and he was going to a different church. And he was going back to his father's church to go be on staff there. And he hadn't been to his father's church in a few years. And he was telling me the story about when he went back to his dad's church this past Sunday. It was his first Sunday. And he listened to his dad preach, who's been preaching at this church for 30 years faithfully. And my friend said that when he listened to his dad preach, it was actually the worst sermon he's ever heard his dad preach. Awkward. And my friend tells me that he was talking to his dad, and he, him and his dad have a very honest, real relationship. They both have the Holy Spirit. And so my friend walked up to his dad, and he said, Dad, that was not a good sermon. <laughs> and his dad's like, I know. And then he was explaining to him, you know, he was telling him about his week, and here's kind of what happens with pastors. We, we try to write a sermon, but we have meetings that we want to make sure we're engaging, and then there are needs in the church, and there are staff meetings and board meetings. And so you can just be eaten up by meetings. And not only that, but this pastor had all of those meetings, plus there was an emergency of a friend, and so he had to be in the hospital during his time of preparation. And so when he came to preach, he wasn't as prepared as he usually is. And my friend, his son, came to him, and here's what he told him. He said, that wasn't a very good sermon. I've asked for permission to share the story, by the way. That wasn't a very good sermon. Dad, you're just not that interesting is what he told him. Like, wow, like my dad would be getting the belt, right? Like, and so he, <laughs> the belt of truth. And so he, <laughs> and so he tells him, he's like, you're just not that interesting. Dad, the reason people appreciate you, the reason they come to this church is because for 30 years, you've just opened up the Bible and you've explained what it says. That's where the power is. And his dad's like, you're right, you're right. And his church has been the beneficiary of this exact formula that just open up the Bible and explain what it says. Because it's not about a preacher's charisma. It's not about a preacher's life hacks. It's not about a preacher's slides, even though Mike has really good ones. It's not about that. The power is in the word of God, amen? And so I bring that up because Paul tells Timothy to preach the word to make it about what God actually says, to not just make it about illustrations and examples, but to actually preach this. And he says, in season, and a lot of us are like, yeah, in season, I get it. Like, if I'm on a missionary trip, I'm ready to go preach. Guess what? You're a missionary. So you don't get to turn that off when you're in Santa Clara or San Jose or Campbell or Mountain View. So Paul is telling Timothy, preach the word, be prepared, be ready, because the power is not in your wisdom, it is in God's word. So turn with me to Acts chapter 17. That's where we're going to spend most of our time today, Acts chapter 17. We're going to see a place where Paul was prepared, he was ready, and he didn't just preach his perspective, he preached the very words of God. 
And so no matter what context that he was in, he was ready to make much of Jesus. Let me say that to you so you'll hear it. No matter where you are, be prepared to make much of Jesus. So Acts 17, starting in verse 16, it's going to talk about Paul waiting for them in Athens. These are the other apostles. The book of Acts is actually about the actions of the apostles, these men who had seen Jesus alive after he had died and risen from the dead. And then they start to go and just preach the gospel, and a bunch of people are coming to follow Christ. And you know what happens when you preach the gospel in different cities? Two things happen, either a revival or a riot. And in some cases, it was both. So here's what it says in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. While Paul traveled into possibly one of the most important cities in all of the world, especially over the past few centuries, and instead of walking into the city that had all of these amazing, uh, all this amazing culture, all this amazing articulate construction of buildings... Instead, he noticed all the idolatry, all of this area that was full of idols. So what's wrong with idols, you may ask? We watched a show. It was called American Idol. Seemed like a good show. Simon was hilarious, right? Like, we start to think, no, idols aren't that bad. But let me tell you three things that idolatry does. First, it seeks to take glory from God. That's what idolatry does. It seeks to take glory from God. It also wants to take credit for things that should point us to Jesus. Wants to take credit for things that should point us to Jesus. And idolatry makes something that is good into a God. If you're taking notes, write this down. Idolatry is incredibly, incredibly subtle. And if you don't know how to spell subtle, ask your neighbor. Idolatry seeks to take glory from God, praise to God. Idolatry wants to take credit for things that should point us to Jesus. And idolatry makes something that is good into a God. So I got a question for you. Paul goes into the city, very articulate, very beautiful, all all this culture. And he notices that the city is full of idols. So I want you to think about how you got here today. Either you walked or you drove or you Ubered or you made a college kid drive you. I don't know. But however you got here today... How much idolatry did you witness on the way here? If you're anything like me, you probably didn't notice. You probably didn't notice the idolatry that's all around us. And chances are you didn't see it. And yet Paul had this perspective because he was focused on pointing people to the truth of the gospel. And idolatry will numb this in us. That's one of the reasons that so many Christians are so comfortable with just being comfortable Because idolatry has numbed the need of actually making much of Jesus. Verse 17. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happen to be there. Paul reasoned. Paul made valid points within the culture and the parameters that those in Athens could actually understand. He related with those that he came in contact with. So hear me, wherever you are, There you are to serve Jesus. Wherever you are, there you are to serve Jesus. So if you're at work, if you're at school, if you're at a restaurant, if you're at a coffee shop, if you're talking to your neighbor, guess what, Christian? If you have the spirit of God inside of you, you are a minister of reconciliation. So if you get housing allowance or not, you still got to make much of Jesus. Verse 18. 
group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul, him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Another way to read this is, what is this seed picker trying to say? Like, this was a diss. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. If you underline in your Bibles, underline resurrection. I want you to think about, if you're a committed Christian, I want you in just this moment to think about what your faith is about. I want you to think about the understanding of what Christianity is about. And if you just look at it from a surface level, it seems kind of far-fetched, doesn't it? That God created everything out of nothing. Wait, what? That he breathed life into existence. That he created man and woman, both equal with different roles. That he allowed for the opportunity of sin. And guess what? Sin entered in. And then all of a sudden, those, that man and woman were kicked out of the garden. And then we'll, we'll skip ahead, but there was a flood and there was a pretty cool coat and there was some other stuff that happened. But there were these prophets that were sent to tell these people that were God's chosen people, you better repent. And all of it taught about this coming Messiah who's going to come do for them what they could not do for themselves. And then a woman who was a virgin had a child with the Holy Spirit. And that baby grew in stature and grew and became, or has always been God, but that person, Jesus, lived among us. He lived the life you and I couldn't live. He died the death you and I deserved to die because of our sin. And then he physically rose from the dead. And then he showed himself to over 500 people over 40 days. He talked and met with and connected with and, and, built and, and was touched by some of these people. And then he ascended to heaven And one day, if you read Revelation, one day he's coming back on a white horse with a tattoo on his thigh and a sword coming out of his mouth. That sounds crazy, church. But if you're a Christian, you actually believe that. So you need to know that when we proclaim the message, some people who haven't understood it don't understand it because it sounds far-fetched. But it all points not only to the cross, but to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just the cross that we preach. It is the resurrection of Jesus, and it is that resurrection that is compelling. See what I did there? Okay, verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting. What a glorious opportunity, church. Paul is going, and he's talking, and he's telling people about the Lord, and then some of the most important people in the city go, hey, Come to this place. We're going to give you a platform to share with others this teaching that we're hearing about. So a lot of us think of Areopagus as a city council meeting, and that's not necessarily wrong. It's where the most important influencers and thinkers of this society were. But Areopagus in this context was known as a court. Now, how many of you have ever been to court? Okay, a few of you, and then some of you don't want to say, got it. All right, that's fine. And it's not so much a judicial court that you and I are used to, especially if you've been on trial or seen the court proceedings. But this was a place where you essentially brought in the newest philosophy into the city. And when you brought this new philosophy or this new belief system, this court, Areopagus, if you will, would check your work. They would check your work. They would would question your logic behind your reasoning. So Paul is about to ask, Paul is about to be asked about this new teaching that he was bringing. Which, honestly, church, wasn't a new teaching at all. 
but the continuation of the Hebrew scriptures and the Messiah that had been written about for thousands of years, you don't have a new faith. You have an unveiled faith. Do you hear that? Verse 20. Actually, no. You know what? I think so often we get an ordained opportunity from the Lord. Paul had a God-ordained opportunity in this moment. Come, come tell us about Christianity. We'd love to get saved, right? Like, that's the opportunity that's been presented to him. And yet, so often, you and I, we pray for opportunities, don't we? But let's just be honest. We pray for them half-heartedly. We pray and say, Lord, give me a chance to share who you are, forgetting the fact that there are people all around us that we could share with others who he is. You don't have to get on a plane to share Christ, church. Verse 20, they continue, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Does this sound familiar to any of us? Our culture in 2018, especially in the Bay Area, let's get even more micro, in the South Bay Area, wants to discuss different technologies, don't we? Different philosophies. We even want to discuss spiritual matters. But for many, our assumption is that you can't really know God, that a higher power is mystical. There's no absolute truth. There's no real way to know God personally. So what if, I mean, this is a big what if, but what if God revealed himself? What if he walked among us? What if he taught about the kingdom of God? What if he healed the sick and preached to the masses and left us with a narrative of our past, present, and future? What if? That was sarcasm. Okay. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. This kind of sounds like an encouragement, rebuke, encouragement sandwich. Okay? That's a thing. Write that down. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship... I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Wow. Paul starts with this encouragement. You all look very religious. You have all of these statues. You have all of these things that are exalting your God. But to us, doesn't that sound kind of like a diss or a slight? Well, you're totally religious, man, right? Like, that's what that sounds like to us. But in this context, they receive this probably as a compliment. As being religious and pious was considered the point to many people. To do things a certain way, to do things religiously, to show outwardly what, to be honest, many didn't even believe inwardly. And because of that, because of this, these idols and all these multiple gods, they were very inclusive to give play or give time to an assortment of different gods and idols because they figured quantity was better than quality. They figured quantity was better than quality. And Tim Keller, the preacher in the East Coast, he led a church called Redeemer for many years, and now he's working at a seminary. He's written many books, and he responds to this because I think people today still kind of think of quantity. If I just go to church enough, 
you better get church. But if you just go to church enough, if you just serve enough, if I just memorize enough, then me and God are good. You know, the only reason you and God are good is because you repented because he did for you what you could not do for yourself. So it's not about what you can do. It's about what he's already done for you. But Tim Keller responds to this idea, and he says, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. It's not the strength of your faith. And he goes on. He's talking about a man falling off a cliff who reaches out for a branch. And he says, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. It's about the object. So is Jesus the object of your affection? Is Jesus the object of your faith? So Paul was commentating, if you will, on the fact that they had different statues created for a plethora of gods throughout the city. And not only the ones that everyone knew about, but in their thinking, just in case they missed one of the gods that they didn't know about, they created a statue to the unknown god just in case. (laughs) That's religious. That's mystical. So because of this, Paul jumped on the opportunity to explain to them something that they just did not understand. Too often in evangelism, we're not only attempting to answer questions no one has asked, and I feel like through the series we've kind of beat that dead horse, but don't answer questions no one's asked. Got it? Cool. But we also attempt to educate people in subjects that are far past their current understanding. Sometimes I feel like when we're sharing our faith, we're trying to teach physics to first graders. Often we forget the message of the gospel, that Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He lived, he died, he rose again, and he adopts us into the kingdom of God if we would trust him. We forget that, and you know what we want to convert people to? Seminary students. Calvinists. I'm not against that, just so you know. But I'm against that being the point. Because Jesus Christ is the point. He always has been and he always will be. And Paul's main objective was not to create a bunch of philosophers that had a new thinking. But his main objective, which ought to be our main objective, is if we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So let me just put that out there. If you're not sealed with the Holy Spirit, this probably isn't your main objective. Let me just put that out there. But if we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, then our objective should be like Paul's that we ought to introduce people to God because we know God ourselves. Have you ever tried to introduce someone to someone you didn't actually know? Kind of awkward, right? It doesn't really work. And people from every generation, every background, have the opportunity to receive what we know as eternal life. Oh, eternal life, how we have skewed the point of eternal life. And I think before we really talk about how to share this, I think you and I need to understand what eternal life is and what eternal life isn't. Hear me. Eternal life isn't about time. It's about a kind. It's not about a time of life. It's about a kind of life. And eternal life is about a life that is rooted, founded, focused, and formed through our relationship with knowing God. Well, God how we see him? No, God of the Bible that we trust. In fact, Jesus, I love it when certain words get thrown around and then Jesus actually defines them in the scripture. In John 17, 3, Jesus is speaking. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This word know means to experience. If you dive deeper, it actually means to submit. That you would know God and his son whom he has sent. So parents, if you're a parent in this room, please look up at me. Parents, your job is to help your children, no matter how old they are, to be introduced to God through Jesus Christ. It's not my wife's job. It's not the children's director's job. It's not our future youth pastor's job. No, no, no. It is your job. And you get them, and they can't go anywhere for the first 18 years according to law. So, awesome. But parents and friends and brothers and sisters, nothing is more important than first you knowing God. It's kind of like when you're on a plane and they do the whole instruction thing and we all put our headphones on and we put our phone on airplane mode, but we're not actually listening to the stewards and stewardess. And they say, hey, just so you know, take that mask and put it on your face first and then put it on your kid. That's what it means to introduce your kids to God. You must know him first. Woo, that was good. I just came up. That wasn't in my notes. That's free. All right. <laughs> been flying a lot. <clears throat> Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Wow. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Those in this culture believed that something, in Athens, in Greece, they believed that something created all things. But they did not believe or understand that this creator could be known personally. So Paul is breaking it down. He's making it clear that the God, this God isn't only knowable, he's personal. That you can have a personable relationship with this God. That he is creative and he is specific in his actions. And this God that Paul preaches is not one you could create in your own mind. You ever think about that? God, the God that I worship from the word of God is not the God I'd make up. I ain't that smart. In fact, I would make up a God that I could control. I would make up a God that I could get to do what I wanted to do based on what I do as long as people aren't watching. Like every other cult I've ever heard of. Verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked, see that? He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Woo, God's in control. Get used to it. Verse 27, God did this so they would seek him. Don't miss this. And perhaps reach out for him and find him Though he is not far from any one of us. Underline that part. Though he is not far from any one of us. Church, do you understand, if you're a part of this church or not, this is your first Sunday, whatever, do you understand that God left breadcrumbs in history and in creation and in our human intellect to understand that something did not come from nothing other than God who's always been and God isn't just one to believe in, but one to bow down to. God is not one to just believe in. He is one to bow down to. And if we want him, look at me, look at me. If we want him, we get him. What better truth is there than that? Levi loves that. If we want him, we get him. But it actually is shown that we want him by acting on our belief to reach out for him. Let me take you to everyone's favorite book, if you like to argue. Revelation chapter 3, 
Revelation chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up here. But Revelation chapter 3, John the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, writes this while on the island of Patmos. They tried to boil him alive. Didn't work out. So they just made him go onto an island that had some of the best views in the world. And he says this. He's, Jesus says this. So he writes this down. Verse 20. Here I am, Jesus says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Often we have this expectation that God isn't close to any of us. Probably because we know the actions that we do. We know the things that we do wrong. We know how we've been relationally rude to someone. And so we think that every time we sin, we're getting farther and farther and farther away from God. But here's what I'm here to tell you if you're broken this morning, that as soon as you're willing to repent, as soon as you're willing to turn around, as soon as you're willing to about face, he's right there to meet you no matter how far you've tried to run. But we must turn to him. We must allow him to come in and eat with us. We must open that door, if you will. And, and let, me, let me give you a point that I appreciate, but I'm going to keep preaching it no matter what, even if we want to theologically argue. I don't believe God forces himself on any of us. He gives you the opportunity to receive him or reject him. Well, how does that work with predestination? Don't know. I just know that God loves us and he draws us and we have the opportunity to receive or reject him. And if you want nothing to do with him, he'll give you what you want. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets. Who are our poets? Kanye. Right? As some of your own poets have said. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul decides to translate what he is saying to the audience in which he speaks. Do you guys see how important that is? Don't teach physics to a first grader. He doesn't use words that these people would have to Google. You understand what I'm saying? Or a vocabulary in which he gets to show off his education. Plus, he addresses the fact that even those who were Epicureans and Stoics of different philosophies... He addressed it in a way that they were familiar with. He quoted their poet from the 5th century, who I can't pronounce his name, so I'm not going to say it. And he explained how the God that even that poet talked about knowingly or unknowingly is available for people to reach out to if they would just repent. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. I love this point that Paul makes, that God is not one that could be created, shaped, or formed by human hands. He is not one you or I would or could create. And his ways, church, are not our ways. He is countercultural because our culture, ever since the garden, has been one of sin, self-reliance, and self-sufficiency. Ever since the garden... Our culture has been one full of sin, self-reliance, and self-sufficiency, and we have a God that's not about those things. We have a God who's willing to come in and be sufficient for you. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, <laughs> but now he commands all people everywhere to attend church once a week. <laughs> 
Now he commands all people everywhere to, what's that word? Repent. Which a lot of us treat as, oh, I'm sorry, and I'm going to keep doing it. And this statement that Paul makes during this proclamation of the good news has always struck me as something that I don't know if you and I put enough stock in. You and I have been ignorant as those, each one of us, none of us were born into the church or born into Christ, okay? None of us. Even if you grew up with the most Christian parents ever, at some point you must receive the gospel. But at some point, if you know it or not, you were ignorant to the truth of the gospel. You were ignorant to the idea that Christ came and lived the life you couldn't and died in your place and physically rose from the dead. You were ignorant to these things. But if you've heard that, and I guarantee if you've attended here, you've heard it, you have to do something with it. And Paul says, repent, which is a word that I want to make sure that not only are you and I familiar with, but we become experts in. Because if we're going to introduce others to Jesus and implore them to know God through his one and only son, Jesus, we have to make sure that they understand that they have, that each one of us, them included, you included, have committed cosmic treason against a holy and perfect God. And because he's holy and perfect, in order to pay for that sin, he needed a holy and perfect sacrifice. And that sacrifice name is Jesus. Because he did for you what you could not do for yourself. So if you believe this and you believe God at his word, our response cannot be one of apathy, but of a passion to follow. And that starts with repenting. That starts with changing direction, changing your mind, changing your physical action from following a way to following Yahweh. You see what I did there? That was punny. Stop following your way, follow Yahweh, change direction, and follow Jesus. So I asked these a few weeks ago, but this really has a lot to do with repentance. If you want to know if, you're, if you've repented, are you heartbroken over your sin, and are you willing to follow the Son? Are you heartbroken over your sin, and are you willing to be committed to follow the Son? If you are, you have repented and now you have the opportunity to show others what you believe inwardly, but you get to show it outwardly. In a few weeks, we're going to be offering baptisms here. And there's this barbecue-looking thing outside. It's actually a baptistry for those of you that didn't notice. We're not going to barbecue you. In fact, the water will probably be cold because we want to make sure you have faith. <laughs> but, but hear me. We're having baptisms not because the water saves you. Let Colts preach that. We're having baptisms because you outwardly get to show what you believe inwardly. And you have the opportunity to evangelistically show others, hey, I'm about this Jesus. I'm about following him. I'm about this commitment, and I want to show others my commitment because I've repented, so I'm going in to that water. Too often, we treat baptism as the finish line rather than the starting blocks to following Jesus. That's why so many people walk away from the faith because they thought they did everything they had to do. I believed, I prayed a prayer, I got baptized. I'm good, right? Well, not biblically, but okay. Are you willing to follow Jesus? In baptism, we, when we are baptized, we are symbolizing that our identity is now found with Christ, that we're going under the water and dying to our sin, and we're being raised to life like Christ was raised to life, and we identify ourselves with Jesus through the waters of baptism. So if you're ready, tell us. 
I'm going to try to convince you not to do it, because if I can convince you not to do it, you shouldn't do it. Verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Another word for that is ordained. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. If you underline in your Bibles, underline raising him from the dead. I love that this was the proof. I love that he didn't say, and the proof is based on how good Christians are at Christianity. This is evidenced by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So let me, let, me, let me speak to those of you who aren't totally offended yet. Christians, we don't live urgently like we ought to. There will come a day that Jesus will come back. Revelation doesn't assume this. Revelation, the book of Revelation, proclaims this. He's coming back. And when he comes back, you and I better not just look busy. But we best be prepared, and being prepared has far more to do with applying what you're learning in the Word of God than it does with you being comfortable. God the Father ordained Jesus. He gave him the authority to judge the living and the dead. You know why? Because he isn't just a son. Jesus isn't just a God. Jesus is the Son, and he is the God. And he knows our hearts far better than anyone else. Does it scare you a little that not only does God know all the things that you do when no one's watching, but he even knows the motive behind why you do what you do? It scares me. And God has proven that he has appointed Jesus to be the judge. How? By raising Jesus from the dead. So I know you've heard this, but you know that there is no more important answer, no more important fact, no more important reality than knowing that Jesus rose from the dead. And unlike Lazarus, who just died again, our King, our Lord, Jesus, he is as alive today as he was on the third day. Hallelujah. So don't think that he's not busy doing stuff today, using us, those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. You ever had anyone sneer at you? Right? Like, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Hear me. The resurrection sounds crazy, church. I've been to Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Dead men tell no tales. And yet Jesus rose. And that doesn't change the fact. It doesn't change the fact that it sounds crazy. It doesn't change the fact that the resurrection makes far more sense than all of the ridiculously stupid arguments people have against the resurrection. Trust me, I was one that tried to use those arguments to disprove Christianity, and I was wrong. People will sneer at this idea of the resurrection. It even says that people scoffed, and they'll maybe even think you're crazy, but don't miss this. Even if they think you're crazy, isn't it worth the blessing for those that will actually receive it and repent? So no matter if you're at work or you're at school, if you're talking with your neighbor or your waiter or your barista or your colleague, you and I have a commission. We have a responsibility to let others know that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a revolutionary leader. Don't let people neuter Jesus, guys but that he is the Lord God Almighty and the proof is in the resurrection from the dead. 
Some will scoff, but some will repent. Isn't that worth it? Two practical questions. We're going to go all practical before we invite the worship team up and we do communion and offering. We're just going to get really practical. So Jordan, would you grab the, the, um, that, the whiteboard, because I love whiteboards. Would you bring it over here? And Stephen, I apologize. You may have to get this in the shot. But I'm going to give you two practical questions. And I want you to not only learn these questions, I want you to think about where you would share these questions in a conversation. Okay, here's the first question. What do you believe I, as a Christian, believe? What do you believe I, as a Christian, believe? Man, you will hear some of the most ridiculous, mythological, absurdity, Simpsons, family guy version of Christianity you've ever heard. But what do you think I, as a Christian, believe? Now, don't ask every person you run into, hey, nice to meet you. So I'm a Christian. What do you think I believe? No, 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 no. Have some social skills. But if the conversation's going in that direction, and maybe you're talking about spiritual things, hey, what do you think I, as a Christian, believe? And then the second one, and again, it doesn't necessarily come in succession, like right after you ask that first one, but what's stopping you from following Jesus? There's been no other question I've asked to more people that, that has not as that has been used by God to actually lead people to the Lord. Hey, what's stopping you from following Jesus? My favorite answer? I don't know. Well, do you want to? Sure. <laughs> that actually happens. But then we have to make sure they understand what they're getting into. And guys, my heart's breaking because I think there's so many people in the church that have no idea what they signed up for. I'm not even going to go on that tangent because of time, but it just breaks my heart. So asking these in a conversation will make the main thing the main thing, rather than trying to convert people to a set of beliefs or a philosophy, but this is about introducing people to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And you get to explain how they can make him both Lord and Master, and this will help you see that God is at work today and he wants to use messed up people like you and I. So where do we share? Wherever we are, <laughs> where do you share? Wherever you are. Wherever you are, there you are to serve Jesus. So where do you share? Wherever you are. But we must be intentional. We must pay attention to those that God has entrusted to us relationally. Let me say that again because you want to write that down. We must pay attention to those that God has entrusted us relationally. So I want you to grab your bulletin. Some of you have already messed this up because I forgot to tell you about this, but towards the bottom where there are questions, there is this space. And you've probably written all over this because you're all awesome note takers and you're all going to apply it to your lives and you're all going to grow spiritually and it's going to be awesome. But what I want to encourage you with is something, just an exercise that I learned from a missionary a while back. And this is really talking about our oikos. That's a Greek word, not for yogurt. It's actually a Greek word for extended household. And the extended household are the people that we come in contact with throughout our week. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to draw a circle on this paper. Not too huge because you're going to draw some lines and some other circles out of this. But look at my circle. Don't make it life, that life size because you'll write on your arm and that wouldn't be good. But this is your oikos. This is your extended household. For those of you that can read that, that's how you, you spell oikos. O-I-K-O-S. Let's see if I can knock everything over. Uh, and so this is the oikos. And I want you to think right now, where do you go in the average week? Where do you go? What do you do? So I'm going to use me because I know me better than I know you. But let's, let's, this is me and 
I'm going to try to be general so you're not like, oh, I go to Tim's Pete's. No, okay? So I go to a coffee shop. Outside of my house, I probably spend most of my time at a coffee shop throughout the week. I like my office, but it's too big. Anyway, coffee shop. Uh, another place I go, well, obviously, I'm at home. Another place I go, uh, bike ride. Another place I go, uh, Stephen's house, uh, friend's house. Uh, I go to Target because I can walk there. And I have a wife and four kids. Uh, I go to other friends' churches just to say hi if I'm grabbing lunch with them. Or my church, if you will. Okay, here's the point. You guys get this. You drew the circle. You put Oikos on it. Okay, so at the coffee shop, who am I thinking about when I go to the coffee shop? Well, you all know this. You know I think about Daniel, the guy that always tells me every Sunday, break a leg. I love that. He told me this morning, my, my favorite barista, he said, hey, one of these Sundays, I'm coming. I said, awesome, I won't talk about you that week. Okay, and he's like. <laughs> but I want you to do this with the coffee shop, and I want you to think about, and it doesn't have to be the coffee shop, but I want you to think about that person that symbolizes that coffee shop. For me, it's Daniel. And so I pray for Daniel. I think about Daniel. I engage with Daniel. He goes, as soon as I have a Sunday off, I'm coming. I said, let me talk to your manager. <laughs> At home, obviously, my four ladies, my three daughters and my wife, and my one and only son, hallelujah, one boy. I don't think I can handle more than one boy, so God bless those of you who have more than one. When I go on a bike ride, there are multiple people that want to go on bike rides with me, so I start to think about them. How can I use this as an engagement to connect with people and build a relationship? Target, I know Kristen. She works there. She needs encouragement, so I think of Kristen. So, y'all get this? Like, this isn't Greek, right? Well, I mean, that is, but the rest? And, and the idea is that throughout your week, you're engaging with people. So stop thinking about people overseas. I'm not against overseas mission trip, but let's start with the people in our lives. If we're afraid to talk to them, how dare we get on a plane? So I want to pray for us, but I hope that you would actually think about this as we start to worship. And we're going to take communion, and then we're going to have an opportunity to engage a little bit more with this as the service is about to end after everything else. And so, would you close your eyes? Would you bow your heads? Worship team, would you come on up? God, we thank you for the opportunity that we had this morning to engage with you. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just hear some excitement or some words. We wouldn't be motivated by flesh because of inflection in a pastor's voice, but that we would be changed by the power of your spirit and applying your word to our lives. And God, you've put people in our place because you want to see them know you. And Lord, I like when I think about the fact that if we don't worship, the rocks will cry out. Lord, I think that if I don't talk with those around me, Lord, you may bring somebody else because I'm not in control. It's not based on me. But Lord, I don't want to miss that blessing of being your minister. And so, Lord, send me. Send us. Allow us to be ministers of reconciliation, prepared with an answer when asked. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.